episode 9 of the Midwest Babylon Podcast. We took a bit of a break there, but we're back. We have guest host Dusty Hirsch, if you recall, was on episode 4 as Allison Chain's super fan. In addition to Dusty Hirsch, we have Brian Herb, the engineer, guitar tech, roadie for bands like Allison Chain's, Helmet, Bush, and others. We're going to get into it here shortly. Stay tuned. like it's how you and dusty met you know so dusty i'll kind of let you take it away i don't want to steal your thunder man um but you know how kind of seeing how that worked out i've heard Dusty's side of it but my side of it it was more it was like this like uh you know i i had been on the road for several months well we were actually nearing the end we were almost two years into a two-year album cycle but i hadn't been home for probably seven or eight weeks and uh, we had a show in Minneapolis, so it's like, I'm going to see my wife and kids. And my wife and kids, you know, came in the venue or whatever, and they were like, Dad, there's some weird guy outside with, like, a mask that looks like your face, and he's wearing overalls and everything. And so so that's how the day started for me, you know? Well, my, my, my wife and kids showed up, and they were just like, there's some guy outside wearing a mask of your face. And I'm like, okay, all right. Here we go. Yeah. So for me, it started probably a week before the show, and I really wanted to get the band's attention. So I uh, was going through pictures of my phone, and I, I don't I don't know where it was, but Herb was in there somewhere, and it, I don't Herb, you don't remember this, but you gave me a couple set lists, like I have a couple shows in a row. So I remembered you. You didn't remember me. No big deal. And someone's like, dude, you look just like that fucking guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe, you know, he's pretty handsome, so possibly. And uh, and what happened was one of my design gals, who's uh, awesome, um, I asked her to be my friend on Facebook. And a few days later, we were. She found a picture of him. My dad has a print shop, and he printed this big-ass picture of his face out. And I drove to Minneapolis the day before, and I was like, super excited. And um, I got there first. I was the first person there, which I usually am. I try to be anyway, so I can get up on the rail in front of Jerry or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I put the the big ass face out in front of my face and Jerry said something during the show. I don't, I don't remember what he said. And, um, it went to intermission and, uh, this dude came out with this, like all access and chains, uh, you know, around his neck. He's like, Hey dude, Allison chains, once you come up on stage for the encore. And I'm like, what? You know, in disbelief, I like, didn't know, don't know if I heard him right. He's like, hey, he's like, hey, man, Jerry wants you up on stage. If you want to go, you got to go right fucking now. He's like, totally serious and got pissed off. I'm like, let's go. Oh, that sounds more like Binder than Gage then. Yeah. <laughs> it was intense, but it was it was fast. You know what I mean? It was no big deal. He was super cool. And then, I mean, the rest of his sister went up on stage. and Gavin used to do this weird thing where he would have a bunch of girls come up on stage and just like, 
I, I don't know. Some of those get kind of weird sometimes. Or he, he runs around in the crowd a lot. And like one time there was like a mob kind of happened in, on the lawn at a, uh, a shed amphitheater show out on the lawn. This like mob kind of got overwhelmed. They had to stop playing and like pull him out from under like a crush of people. Like there was some, some pregnant lady almost got crushed, but the tour manager Ross was like, covering her like you know keeping her from getting crushed yeah it was intense mm. whatever stuff gets weird sometimes so speaking of that so herb tell us you've you've mentioned it before but say it for the podcast you've worked some pretty awesome bands right so who have you all worked for then in, in uh from top to bottom well i i'll just say this instead there's a lot of people who have like 30 or 40 bands on their resume uh, you know, and they kind of like jump from band to band to band, but I'm sort of a weirder dude who has a very small number of bands on my resume, but that I've all worked for, for a very long time, you know, cause I tend to stay in gigs for a very, very long time. And anyone who's listening to this podcast for any length of time knows that, uh, we are huge fans of Alice in Chains. So how long have you worked with that band in particular? Uh, I think I'm coming up on six years this year. Five years, a little over five years, maybe. So you've worked with them with the Rainier Fog album that came out in 2000, J.R. Craig before wrong, 17? I believe that's correct. Or was it 18? Something like that. Two years ago. And then The Devil Put Dinosaurs, you came right around that time, give or take. It was, I think that, I don't think it was actually the official <laughs> tour for it. I think... Gosh, I want to say it was 2014 when I started. Perfect. That sounds right. Yeah, I mean... So you're, you're very committed and dedicated, it sounds like, right? So you don't jump to band to band to band to the next gig or whatever. I'm not very good at like de- remembering details, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, but I do take my work very seriously. And, and I think that like in able to, be, to be able to do what I do, you have to um, develop a rapport with the the artists or the people that you work for and uh, or work with and that doesn't happen overnight so if you're lucky enough to you know to stay in a gig for a, a while um you know it's much easier to have that kind of like rapport and the kind of dialogue that it takes to really to do the job well so to, that being said it's it's it seems counterintuitive or counterproductive to me to to jump from band to band to band like a lot of people do Right, right. So how, when you do switch or add another band to the short list, right, we'll call it the short list, well, you know, what does that look like? So how do you get hooked up with someone like, like Bush, who I grew up on with Alice in Chains? I, you know, I know who Helmet are. That, that one was kind of weird. Like, <clears throat> I, uh, so I'm, in addition to being a roadie, I, I run a couple different businesses that are all music related. Like, I got my start in the industry uh, as a recording engineer. Um, I built my first commercial recording studio in uh, 1996, I think, and quit my day job that fall and just kind of never looked back, you know, and uh, that very quickly evolved into owning and operating a live sound reinforcement company, you know, like PA rentals and things like that. And I kind of had started building this little empire around town of, uh, you know, training young sound engineers to do the job and stuff and uh one of my first clients with the pa company was a place called grumpy's and they ran uh the guys that owned that that bar ran the amphetamine reptile recording label 
no, so these guys run this uh, what's called Amphetamine Reptile uh, record label, and it's the label that has like Helmet and uh, the Cows and uh, you know all, all these different bands on it. And so they would always do shows with like the Melvins or or Helmet at the bar, which you know for a little bar that doesn't normally do shows, they were always just like packed beyond capacity and they were really hip shows. And it was f- some of the first gigs I had with my sound company. And one of the first ones was a helmet show. And at the time, Chris trainer who eventually, you know, who plays in Bush uh, was also playing in helmet at the time. He founded a band called uh, orange nine millimeter back in the nineties. And then he got hired to play for helmet and then after that, he got hired to play in Bush. Or I think, I don't know, maybe the chronology might be wrong on that. But so I worked, I, I met, I worked this Grumpy show where Helmet came and played and met all those dudes. And it, it was a, kind of a, a lot of intersection for that one show because, uh, you know, Chris was playing in Helmet, but I ended up working for Gavin Rossdale in 2005. I started teching for Chris, it was actually my very first guitar tech gig. And we went out and did like two legs on the uh, Vertigo tour with U2 which was kind of crazy. And then Chris was also still playing in helmet. So later after that, we went and did the warp tour with helmet. And then Chris quit the band and I stayed with helmet, but then, uh, Gavin's did a solo record years ago. And Chris asked me to come back and do that. And then, so when Gavin reformed Bush, I had already been working for Chris and him, Chris and Gavin since like 2005 in the interim while Gavin, Gavin had a project called Institute, and then, uh, you know, had a solo record out. And then that, that was before Bush came back together. But the reason I say that one show was like a lot of intersections because not only did I end up working for Chris with Bush for a long time, I ended up touring with Helmet for, I think, 11 years. I worked for Chris for like 15 or 16 years with Bush. And then also at the time of that very first Helmet show that I worked, John Tempesta was playing drums. And he ended up uh, playing, being the drummer in the cult when I did a couple of years of touring with them as Billy Duffy's guitar tech. So like that one show sort of led to a bunch of other, you know, gigs. Yeah. Huge opportunities. It looks like, well, it's just the the whole way the whole industry works is like a lot of it really just, you get introduced into gigs by people that are on the gig already. Like you'll have a friend that's on a crew who likes you and be like, Hey, you want to come and do this gig? We just lost a guitar tech or, you know, we need a front of house guy. And the, the secret is to like, you have to be really good at the gig. You have to understand the technical stuff. You have to be, have like, you know, the technical side of it's only like 10% of the gig though. And you have to have 11 of those 10% together and really be on top of your game. But 90% of it is people skills. Just like you have to be able to live on a bus with 12 people and you have to be able to, uh, you know, ha- be able to communicate and hang out with your artists and not just basically you got to not be a bummer, you know? Yeah. And so have you, has all, have you always kind of lived in the Minneapolis area then and, and just, tra- of course, traveled the world? No, I, I grew up in southern Indiana on a farm in the middle of nowhere um, in a tiny little town called Fountainette, you know, that we always would joke around and say it was population 200, including cows. And uh, I was, you know, it was basically myself and some extended family and a couple other families lived in this. It wasn't like a dying town. It was a dead town. It was a town that had been sort of thriving in the, like, earliest part of the 20th century and then sometime around world war ii there was a or right before world war ii maybe there was an explosion at a powder mill factory like a gunpowder mill factory and it killed a large portion of the male population of the town 
And uh, like there had been a high school and a church and a movie theater and all these things in this town. And after that happened, the town just kind of died. By the time that I lived there, as a growing up as a kid, the high school prior to being demolished had been turned into like some guy's casket making shop. And like there was a little church there, but my, my uncle David was the last person to get married in it to his wife, Jan. And then we like tore the church down and salvaged all the wood to like panel our basement with this tongue and groove wood from this church. And the town always had like a, a tavern and like a post office and then there was this little gas station convenience store up on a hill that would open and close under new management every couple of years. And it was just kind of a strange, strange place to grow grow up. And then when I was a teenager, we moved to the Chicago suburbs. And I always tell people it was very much like going to high school on the set of a John Hughes movie. You know, all of a sudden I was a character in uh, Pretty in Pink or, or, or something like that. And uh, uh, it was quite the culture shock. And I spent years trying to uh, work the dialect and uh, the accent from Southern Indiana out of my speech because I was teased mercilessly when, you know, moving from Southern Indiana where uh, uh, there's definitely a, a noted Southern drawl and then moving to the Chicago suburbs where it was this sort of, you know, um, I don't know. It, yeah, it was brutal until I learned to acclimate. And I, like I said, I spent years beating, I spent years developing the non-regionally specific dialect that you hear now. So, <laughs> Herb, tell us, uh, speaking of Southern Indiana, you grew up, tell us the PBR story if you can. Oh, geez. Uh, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't drink these days anymore, but there's a, if you look up PBR stories online, there's a very embarrassing one where I'm standing on a stage after doing a gig, I think at this memory lanes block party thing. My PA company, my sound company had done a, a gig there and uh, I told this story. I was like half in the bag like after we had loaded out. When I was maybe four years old, I uh, out in southern Indiana, my father and a couple of my uncles and a number of my cousins and maybe my grandfather, we were out in like a far, far back field on my uncle Tico's farm and we were uh, – cutting firewood there was a couple of trees that had come down and we were just you know chopping them up and uh cutting up firewood and throwing it in the back of pickups and and whatnot and we're all out there working and myself and a couple of my little cousins had gotten in the front of a pickup truck to warm up because it was like you know the dead of winter and it was cold so it was like me and my cousin andy and my cousin patrick and my cousin uh tico and chad or whatever and we're sitting there we were there was a six pack of of, of pbr in the front of the truck and uh, me and my cousin uh, Andy and Patrick were pretending like we were popping the tops open. You know, it was back when it was pull tab tops before it was the pop, you know, the push in top. And we were pretending like we were opening them and we were going to drink these beers and we accidentally opened one. And, uh, you know, well, my dad and my uncle Tico were like, well, you guys open it. Now you got to drink it, you know? And it was just like, my cousin, you know, Patrick immediately just started crying. And then it was like, my cousin Andy was like, you know, six or something. Or, yeah, I might have been older. Like, I was maybe, I, I don't know. He was little. Like, I, it, we were not old. You know, I was maybe eight, actually, not four. But I don't know how old the fuck old I was. But that was like, 
my first beer, my first beer ever was a Pabst Blue Ribbon, and it was like foisted upon me by my father and uncles because I accidentally opened a, a PBR pretending <laughs> to drink it. It's not a flattering story, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, so uh, what brought you to alcoholism? You know, <laughs> forced to drink a beer when I was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how old I was. I was not very old, like you know, maybe six, eight. I don't know. Too young, too young to be drinking a PBR. Well, you know, I, I had sort of a strange upbringing. My father, my parents divorced when I was about thirteen, and my father was more of like a partying roommate. Um, and so I think I was about 14 when he was, we were having a party in the house and he came home and there was like 25 or 30, like teenage kids running around the house. And we were sitting at the kitchen table playing Indian poker. And my father sat down and put a card on his forehead and proceeded to start playing a drinking game with like, you know, 15 and 16 year olds. And I think I was 14 at the time. Cause I, you know, I was always a, a year younger than everyone. Cause I skipped a grade going to school and, uh, my father, asked me if he could bum a cigarette from me and i figured at that point it was probably uh, you know safe for me to start smoking in the house if if he was going to bum cigarettes off of me and to be fair i had stolen a, a vast majority of the cigarettes that i had had in my life from him at that point in time sure, you know sure, he, he he kept cartons of salem's around and i uh, i you know when you're when you're 14 or whatever you do a lot of you know stealing of cigarettes i guess uh, you know i mean i don't know not that's not anything I'm proud of either. Boy, we're really getting into the good stuff here, aren't we? What do roadies do? I mean, I know some of them will do more than others. You already explained a little bit. I can be the front of house, the back of house, et cetera, et cetera. Specifically, let's just say for Cantrell, what do you do for him? Well, you're right. Every gig is totally different, uh, and it really depends on the crew. The size of the crew has a lot to do with what you're going to do on a gig. The bigger the crew, the more you're able to kind of stay in your own lane and concentrate just on, you know, one person and one, one set of details. But generally when that happens, the bigger the crew gets, the more the expectation for performance increases, you know, like that you don't make mistakes and that everything always works and that kind of stuff. So, um, in the, in the broadest sense of the way to put it, like, when you're a guitar tech, people say you look after an artist, you know, and that just means I, I take care of whatever dude needs. Um, it's my job to make sure that things don't break down, that everything is always smooth and that so that he can just go out there and concentrate on playing. But if like a walkthrough of a typical day, like you show up in the morning, um, depending on whether it's like a festival or a solo show at a club or whatever, you're going to unload a truck and you're going to start loading a bunch of gear in. And uh, the order in which you're going to do things depends on whether or not there's going to be a festival because that'll depend on whether or not there's going to be a sound check or not. But it's like you start the day off getting all the gear unpacked and just making sure that everything worked. Uh, we generally run redundant rigs where you'll have two identical copies of everything just so that if one were to break down, then you have another one that you can essentially switch over to like immediately um, so that it would really be a couple seconds delay that no one would ever even know what went on. Um, but you start, you know, you get everything fired up, you test everything. And then, so you kind of take care of maintenance that you need to take care of and you always have to prioritize. So you'll restring, generally you restring every guitar that they touch every day. And, uh, you know, we do full setups on everything. A lot of what I do with my business at home now working on guitars is informed by the fact that, you know, when you're on the road, you work for players that are iconic players that are, are good enough to notice, it's important that everything is exactly the same every day. 
Because again, like I'm saying, they want to concentrate on just being, they don't want to think about things. They don't want things like distracting them from the performance. So, you know, we, we, ha we have to be very precise about how the instruments are set up. We have to be very precise about how all the sounds are coming out of the rig. So with Jerry, there's also not just taking care of the guitars and setting up the equipment, but you, you maintain all the different sounds that get switched to. And actually for Jerry during the show, I'm actually the one switching the sounds. Like if you hear something go from a clean channel to a dirty channel, or if you hear an effect come on or like a delay come on to a solo with a boost or stuff like that, that's all me controlling that um, off stage because he doesn't want to think about that. So I just have like a programmable controller, like with a foot pedal off stage. And while I'm, you know, one, okay. So you go in, you unpack all the gear, you set it all up you make sure everything works. You restring everything and then you do all your maintenance and fix things. And then there'll be a line check where the other, the, all the roadies sort of play the instruments so that the monitor engineer and the front of house engineer can hear them, check all the microphones and make sure that works, make sure the sound is all the same, not just at coming out of the amplifiers, but coming back into the ears for the artists to hear. And we listen to all that and check all that. And then on a festival or something where it's like we're opening for corn or somebody like that, the band doesn't come in for a sound check. The roadies just play the sound check. But then if we're doing a headlining show in like a theater, then the band will come in and play a sound check where they might run through songs that are new songs they haven't played for a while or, you know, things like that. And then uh, after that, you know, uh, you do what else you need to do to fix things, you know, just clean things up in your world, uh, repair anything that's broken. And then, you know, you kind of take a dinner break and then come back and the show starts and then you run the show and then you pack everything back up and put it back on the truck and do it again tomorrow. And that's a typical day. Cantrell's got, I mean, he's got the the rampages, obviously. So he's got the GNLs, um, and those he runs those probably what a third of his songs that he'll play in typical set list. Uh, no, it's actually much more than that. I would say, well, at least on the last couple of runs, there would be like two or three songs that would happen on Gibsons, either Les Pauls or uh, he recently got some Explorers and V's. And then there would be one or two songs sometimes on a telly here and there. Um, and then, But the bulk of the rest of it was all Rampages. But now he's signed with Gibson. I think we're probably going to be using a lot more Gibsons. But um, there's certain Rampages were set up in drop tuning for, you know, all the stuff that's in drop D, like uh, We Die Young and uh, um, oh, I don't, I, Them Bones and... Uh, uh, rain when I die or whatever you know all the all the drop D songs are on like one set of guitars that there's a main and a backup for and then there's the standard tuning guitars that there's a main and a backup for and then there'd be a main and a backup for whatever Gibson he's going to play that night and a main and a backup for a telly and then uh, usually we were carrying some other Gibsons for variety for a while and then like usually maybe one more extra rampage in the rack we tried it we we started off we were carrying like 20 some guitars we tried to cut that down to 10 just to not have, you know, just take up too much space in the truck and too many guitars to take care of all at one time. But it's also like, I just do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to bring 48 guitars on the road and switch guitars every song, I don't care. I'm, I'm there to make that happen. You know what I mean? Sure. So. He doesn't tour with his original blue dress or the no war guitar anymore right they're all they're all knockoff those are in those are in safekeeping the blue the original blue dress was actually just at the uh, mopop in seattle on display for like nearly a year but then 
we ask them to send it back to us for uh, for recording the record. So, Herb, you've been a touring roadie now for two and a half decades. You know, you've got a family at home. You've had a couple uh, smaller kids. What's it like being on the road? I mean, what, what, what's the good and the bad of it? Uh, the worst part about it is missing your family and being away from, like, the people that you care about. And, you know, obviously your your, your immediate family, your wife and your children, your partner, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have a partner and your children – and, uh, but also just like all your friends and, you know, I, I mean, I play music too, and I play in a couple different bands. I have my own band I write songs for, and I have another band I play bass for, and there's usually a band I'm playing drums in here and there. And you just, you, so all that stuff takes a back seat, like anything, you know, the stuff you want to do takes a back seat to like, well, you gotta, you know, time to make the donuts. You gotta go work. So that's definitely the worst part. Uh, the best part about it is the travel. I never really thought that I cared about traveling until I started doing it for work. So if you're if you're not if you're just traveling as a tourist, you have a tendency to spend money and shop and eat. And that's kind of what you do. And when you tour for work, like especially something like a, a you know as a roadie, you you go to all these interesting places and you meet local people and you work together on a common goal, like you're trying to make a rock show happen, which is generally a pretty cool thing to do. So you know, you, you kind of get to go all over the world. And, and while you don't get to see like tourist sites and I mean, you do on days off and stuff too, but you know, it's more like meeting local people and finding out what their lives are actually like. Cause you work very closely for a day and then you, you move on to the next city. And, uh, that to me is priceless. Just getting to see the world. I think I've been to, I don't know. I lost track somewhere around like 58 or 60 countries I've been to at this point on like five different continents and uh it's it's very eye-opening you know and it's a gift and i feel like if people are lucky enough to get to travel like that and you don't take in the local people and the local food and the local liquor and everything you're leaving you know you're leaving money on the table and that's definitely the best part of it i also really love i mean i love music and i love the industry like i said i play in my own bands and i um i have a band i play guitar in and write songs in i have another band i play bass in and i I play drums and everything I've done for, to make a living as an adult has been around music, whether it's I started as a recording engineer and then started a sound company. My first tours actually were I was touring with a Broadway theater uh, a company as a sound engineer mixing like, uh, you know, like oh, well, the first show I did was like a, a modern musical adaptation of a Christmas carol, you know, like off off broadway you know kind of small time touring company and uh but i just i love music and i've always worked in the industry uh i i was a career pizza delivery guy from about the age of 15 before i had a driver's license until i started uh well i guess i got there a weird way you asked how i became a roadie before i fell over the side of an escalator when i was 23 years old and uh broke most of the bones in my body and when that happened I was looking at a very long period of, of recovery and uh, I had already been playing in a band and was, you know, getting ready to record a record at that uh, AMREP studio that I mentioned before. And uh, when I fell over the side of that escalator, it, I wasn't sure if I was ever going to be able to play again. I destroyed my left wrist really badly. And uh, while I was healing, my brother put the idea in my head that, um, you know, I had always been a very technically minded person. I, I went to college to be a nuclear engineer and dropped out to play in a rock band. 
And my brother put the idea in my head that, you know, you've always been very technical and understood engineering and things like that. And you're also have always been really into music that why don't you get a loan and build a recording studio? And I did. And uh, I, I got like a little $25,000 loan and built like a, a DIY kind of punk rock recording studio in my basement, but just tried to do it really, really well. I lived in a storefront at the time in South Minneapolis, and uh, I turned this storefront into a recording studio and we ran a record label and a recording studio out of that for a number of years. And then, like I said, it evolved into uh, not just recording bands was I started mixing sound live and then uh, started running a sound company. And then I started touring as a Broadway theater engineer. And then uh, eventually just, uh, you know, things sort of evolve slowly and you follow the gigs that pay more and what you like doing. And, and uh, there you have it. But it's been good to me. And uh, I, I'm, I feel lucky that it's something I've, I've gotten to do with my life, you know? Is there anything that you would try to go back and change or, you know, anything to that nature? Or you just feel like, you know what, it was meant to be? This is how it's I supposed mean, to play out? I mean, very little, man. Like, even falling over the side of an escalator put me on a path where, like, I didn't drink alcohol for, like, five years after that happened. And I got hyper-motivated. And just like built this recording studio and started a record label and built my business into like a functional thing. And, you know, I, I haven't had a day job because of that since I was 23 years old. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 47. And uh, that's definitely felt very lucky. And I mean, I guess maybe I, I don't know. I, I've, I've blown a lot of money in, you know, like on the road, like in bars and things like that. But and that's when you look back on that, you're like, ah, that was kind of stupid. But it's also lots of fun. <laughs> so, right. So, yeah, I really, I don't, there's there's very little that I regret other than just missing, you know, my, my family and uh, missing, you know, birthdays or missing anniversaries. Or like when my wife and I first started dating, you know, she's wonderful. And we, uh, I had had this cool party where like I owned a box truck for my sound company and I set up like a bar and couches and like Christmas lights and a stereo system and hired a guy to drive us around all night in this box truck for her birthday. We had this rad party like rolling around from like bar hopping and party hopping in this box truck. And then we went on a very long streak after very shortly after that, where I was on the road for her birthday for like 10 years, just not home once at all, you know? And I got lucky for a while and didn't miss any of my children's birthdays for the first four or five, six years. I just happened to be home for like even a couple of days. Or I know there was a couple of my oldest boy's birthdays where I had to leave the party to go to the airport and stuff like that. But but then, you know, then you hit a streak where it's like, nope, I have missed every birthday for like the past three years, you know. And that shit's a bummer that, you know, I, I definitely regret that kind of stuff. But I also believe and I've, I've had this conversation with other roadies and, you know, my, my partner, Michael, and I have this conversation with our kids that. There's a lot of dads that are home all the time, but they work so many hours that, you know, they get up and go to work before their kids are up and then come home at six or seven at night and see their kids for a half an hour before bed and uh, don't really get to spend any time with them, even though they're home all the time. And generally, when I'm home prior to this pandemic, I'm full on, you know, I'm just building Legos and making lunch and trying to just just. Um, just just straight dad mode you know and straight dad mode straight rock mode basically when i'm home i mess i play around with my kids and i play music with my buddies but now the pandemic has changed that because i've got this new hustle going on where i'm running a guitar repair business from home which i feel very lucky to have been able to do that and uh you know i've got more work than i can do right now 
what were your plans for this summer before all this shit took place? Uh, so there was a number of different things on the table. I had some work lined up to uh, mix front of house for this band called Hundred Gex, and uh, but the same management company that handles Alice in Chains, Velvet Hammer, also uh, manages System of a Down. So I got hired to look after Darren Malakian for the rest of the summer with System of a Down or with uh, his other side project, which I think Scars on Broadway or something like that. And uh, so that was going to be the rest of my summer. It was supposed to lead all the way into September until uh, Jerry started uh, touring for his solo record. So. It's kind of a bummer. Um, you know, I was looking forward to uh, have a really good year, but whatever, man, you can't control uh, the universe throwing a pandemic at you. It's just odd, but that because typically being a roadie and being on the road in the music industry is one of the more recession proof industries out there. It weathers all kinds of stuff and people always want to go out and be entertained, but a pandemic is not a recession. Right. It's a whole different set of parameters. And, uh, and our industry was the first to shut down, and I'm—I I guarantee you, it will be—it will likely be the last to to open up. I don't see it opening until there's a a, a, a vaccine. Like a vaccine, sure. So you, you alluded to it a little bit um, of of what's keeping you busy, uh, and then I, I, you know, what Dusty was mentioning prior to you you jumping on was uh, um, the. Uh, almost like a don donating of, of old gear that you fix up and, and give oh that's to- that's part of it um well that's that's a, that's a small part of it um i do uh i, I run a business I've, I've run a business that recording studio and the record label i used to run i've always done all my music business under the name mother of all music um which is just a name i came up with for the record label in like 1994 or something uh, but Mother of All Music is also my sound company, and so now I'm doing Mother of All Instrument Care and Repair. Uh, and it's not just guitars. I, I work on drums, and I do setups, and I do repairs, and i am actually got a thing in the works. i got kind of a two-year plan we're developing, or I just hired a new employee, and we're rehabbing my garage to turn it into a larger shop and start doing scratch builds and, uh, you know, building, building guitars from scratch or whatever. But... Um, uh, I feel like uh, I was very, very lucky. You know, in the past, I, I kind of shied away from doing guitar work when I wasn't on the road because I just wanted to hang out with my kids, you know. But uh, I'd been home since September anyways, and I kind of missed it. So around Christmas, around the new year, I started taking on a few clients just kind of casually. But then when everything shut down, I was just like, geez, what am I going to do to make a living? And, uh, you know, my partner, Michael, was just like, well, you want you to start working on guitars. And uh, you know, most of the time it takes people years and years to build a business and build a clientele. And I kind of just put it out there on Facebook and in a matter of a couple of weeks had more work backed up than I could, could get to. And I've been very, very lucky that I've been able to kind of pivot my skill set that I've developed on the road for the last 15 years into something that I can do at home to pay the mortgage, you know? So that's definitely been very fortunate. But what Dusty's talking about with the, the fixing up old instruments, uh, I have some clients who donate unwanted instruments to me sometimes and then so i usually do one or two days a month where i donate my time and i fix up like you know old cheap guitars or old junky drum sets and stuff and uh, i get them in the hands of kids who want to learn to play and the kind of the rule is like families that can afford to pay a little you know pay a little bit and get cheap instruments and uh, maybe families that need the help a little bit more get free instruments you know and uh, so I have a program that uh, I call it Good Instruments for Good People. 
and uh, people donate instruments, and uh, I fix them up. And uh, any money that gets generated from like selling the cheap instruments to families that can afford them gets thrown back into like parts and drum heads and strings and you know tuning machines and stuff to, to to rehab other instruments. Or I like I just got a really really nice guitar from a guy that probably what I'm going to do is sell it and buy like four uh, more student model acoustics. You know, yep. uh, but I just. I was very, very fortunate as a child that my parents were supportive and had the privilege of, you know, being able to afford musical instruments and things like that. So when I wanted to learn to play the drums, you know, when I was 10 years old or so, my parents got me a drum set, you know. And later on, by the time I wanted to start learning to play guitar, I had a job and my parents were supportive enough that to let me like, you know, crank up a freaking Marshall in my basement and drive everyone crazy hours a day. And, uh, so I, I want, I just feel like kids, if they want to do it, should be able to do it. And, you know, my children have no end of musical instruments bouncing around the house all the time, but I want everybody's kids if they want to play. So I do a thing like if, you know, if, if people have like a kid that, that wants to play under 18, I always say, just like, have them write me a, a note, you know, send me a message explaining what having an instrument would mean to them. You know, like what would, what would having a bass guitar mean to you? And, uh, they, you know, if they, of course, like they write me a note and I'm just like, all right, I'm going to, the next bass guitar I get goes to this kid for free, you know? And it's all, it's all very disorganized. I, you know, I'm not like set up as a, a nonprofit or it's all very informal. Like just my clients will be like, Hey, I got this guitar. I don't really want, I know you do this thing. Do you want it? And I'll be like, yeah. Or sometimes people will give me junk guitars that are just trash. I'll be like, well, I'm going to salvage the bridge and the pickups out of this and we can put them on this other guitar that works, but it's, you know, and it's just kind of very organic. But I, and I, I think I've been running, I've been doing this guitar business f- f- at home since like second week of April. And I think I've put maybe a half a dozen instruments in kids' hands. So it's not like, you know, a massive thing yet. But I think as it grows, what I'm going to do is I've had a number of young people approach me about apprenticeships with the guitar repair. And I've ha- I have a very long history of having interns with my recording studio and interns with my sound company that have developed skills. And, and a number of them are, are full-time employees or full-time sound engineers or full-time mixing engineers and recording engineers and things like that. Now I don't have any full-time employees with my business, but um, it's all part-timers, but, but it's like a team of people that we all, a lot of them I trained in myself and uh, you know, I've trained a lot of the people that mix live sound in Minneapolis and things like that too. And so I think as this program to rehab these instruments gets bigger, I might take on an apprentice too and just be like, Hey, you want to, maybe after the pandemic eases up, but, you know, you want to learn to fix guitars. You're going to come over two month, two days a month, and uh, volunteer some time to learn how to do setups and learn how to like replace pickups and learn how to, you know, uh, replace tuning machines and uh, you know put put in a new output jack. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I've always thought that was one element of being of giving back to your musical community is to uh, open the door for people who want to work in the industry and try to afford people opportunities to to make a career for themselves or to to expand their skill set and i also i'm kind of like one of those dudes that's the jack of all trades master of none like i play guitar and i sing and i record bands and i run a sound company and i fix amps and i you know i rehab vintage drums and i 
tour as a roadie and, I, and it's like anything music related i do it but i i think that the more you broaden your skill set the more stuff you learn to do it all feeds off each other you know like like being a drummer has made me a better recording engineer and like being a recording engineer made me a better singer and you know being a singer has helped me be a better live sound mixer and uh, as all these skills are interrelated even if they're very very broad disciplines like there's a lot of roadies that are like i'm a monitor engineer that's what i do i mix monitors and me i'm like fuck it i'll do whatever man like i'll go out and you know you whatever you want to pay me to do i'll do it and i like learning new stuff so i'll just i'll do whatever you know I, and yeah. i i kind of feel like that's one of the keys and so there's there's a number of, of young people in my life right now even that like the that uh I play music with and that we work together and we uh, do all kinds of stuff. And it's always just, uh, you know, trying to expand your skill set, get better at what you do. And Her, Brian, is there like an actual name for that uh, give back? I thought I said in your Facebook like a couple of weeks ago. I Whenever I put anything up regarding that, which I've only made two or three posts about it because it's just kind of like the first couple guitars that came in, by the time I was like going to put something up on Facebook, I had already found homes for them, you know? So like they never even made it onto the, the page before they got donated, uh, or, or moved to a fan, you know, re found a new home with a family. Uh, but usually whenever I put up any kind of post about that, it's like thanking people who have donated instruments and just, you know, putting it out there for people to, to send in a note if they, if they're looking for an instrument, and, uh, but I call it, uh, uh, good instruments for good people. But I, I just, that's not really, I just like to put dumb slogans up with the trademark R behind them, you know, on, on freaking Facebook, because I figured out on the emoji keyboard, how to do that little R with a circle around it. So <laughs> whenever I think it's uh, something stupid like that, like I, I put, the, I put the, the trademark R after all kinds of dumb stuff. You know, like when I, whenever I say anything, I think is clever. So uh, it's not, it's not like it's some formal, or like I said, it's not some formal nonprofit organization that has a name or anything. It's just like, just this thing I try to do. But you know, as it gets bigger, I think it, it could be cool. And uh, like I said, right now I'm donating one or two days a month of my time, and I've had a half a dozen or so instruments get donated. But and then uh, uh, the other night I put up a post about it, and a friend of mine who's a great, great visual artist named Laura Bennett was just super, super kind. She donated a, a bass guitar and a snare drum and a set of cymbals and a, a rack tom and some hardware, and it was like about half of what I needed for a drum set and a bass guitar. So, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks when I when I do my volunteer day again, I'll uh, probably rehab the bass first because that'll be easy and go right out to somebody. And then I'll rehab the drums and make sure they have good heads on them and clean up all the hardware and make sure it's all functional. Uh, and then once I find a kick drum and a floor tom, then that that's a freaking drum set for some kid, you know? And drum sets are expensive, man. It's like yeah. drum sets are a few hundred dollars. So, like... A, a kid that wants to learn to play the drums, the parents don't have like four or five hundred bucks to go buy a drum set. Like, I don't know. That's kind of a big thing. Sure. Well, I know Jr. and I. We went to. Uh, I don't know how it works out. We don't have instruments to to to, to give. Um, but Jr. and I do want to donate a hundred dollars to your uh, to your organization to help kids. So whether that's buying parts for instruments or whatever it is, man, that's that's so so kind. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it'll go to is like, 
you know, I like the other day I did a classical guitar that needed tuning machines and, you know, a set of tuning machines like 30 bucks or whatever. And, and so, I, you know, I try to salvage parts where I can from, from instruments that come in or I got pretty big parts bin in my, in my world anyways. But any money that I bring in like that, yep, goes to uh, either buying parts or, you know, I might if I see a good deal on Craigslist for like a, you know, a, like I have one guitar that I'm getting ready to rehab right now that I bought for $18 at a pawn shop, you know, and it, it needs, it needs, you know, you know, a couple hours of my work doing a setup is, is, you know, uh, is usually about 80 bucks, you know, but like I donate all of my time, you know, but I take this $18 guitar and put, you know, $30 worth of parts on it and donate a couple hours of my time. And all of a sudden you got like a rad instrument, you know what I mean? That's like, it might not be, it might, it might still not be worth a lot of money, but it's at least going to be, you know, cheap guitars that are at least like taken care of and set up properly. Like I'll take a well, I'll take a well set up, well-maintained cheap guitar over a poorly set up, poorly maintained expensive guitar any day of the week. Like I give, give me a hundred dollar strat and let me set it up over like, a junky, you know, $2,000 less Paul that's in bad shape and not set up any day of the week, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brian Herb is mother of all instrument care and repair. I tell you, they can get you whatever you need. Um, they set up a GNL rampage for me. Cause like I said, I'm a huge Jerry Cantrell fan. They took care of my needs. Brian Herb did. And I, uh, absolutely recommend anyone listening to this podcast to reach out to him on Facebook. Brian Herb's mother of all instrument care and repair. Look at that. That's quite the plug, Dusty. Thanks, man. Look at that. You better fucking take me on tour. God damn it. When he told me he was getting that guitar, I'm like, well, dude, you got to learn how to fucking play it, dude. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's exactly the type of advertising that's going to take me straight to the middle. Like I said, I, I always I always appreciate the opportunity to work because uh, right now uh, working on guitars is keeping my family fed. And I always appreciate people uh, donating to the program because, uh, you know, something like $100 can, it, it, you know, when you translate that into parts on beat up guitars – That'll put a few guitars in kids' hands, you know. So thank yeah. you guys very much. That's very generous of you. And maybe, uh, maybe we can get that doubled here. I'm hoping we can get that doubled with a couple other folks out there. I know uh, some people that are interested in this podcast. So hey, by the way, where did that uh, that big ass Brian Herb fathead mask, whatever you want to call it, that uh, thing my dad made? Where, did your kids end up getting that from you then, or how did that work? I think that it's in a trunk in the Allison Chains kit. In, in the locker at mates or my kids might have taken it home i don't remember i don't i'll ask them I'll, I'll ask them i don't know where that went i haven't seen it for a while it's probably it's i think it's in a trunk in the allison chains locker at mates in los angeles yes getting late your time we got just a little bit left so do you think in the next five years will touring be the way that it was i don't think that anything in our world is ever going to go back to the way that it was before this i think that that's part of what people are kind of having trouble wrapping their brains around is like this, there's going to be a new normal, you know, but that doesn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think that that's part of life is that things change and things evolve. So no, I don't think that the touring industry is going back to the exactly the way that it existed before. Do I think that like, I'll go back on the road. I, I mean, I hope so. I, I would like to, um, I mean, I, I really love being home too, but I'm, 
Uh, and I'm what I'm trying to do right now is get my business running at home to the point where I don't need to go back on the road if it doesn't happen. But, you know, I love the work. And uh, also, I'm not going to lie that, you know, the money is good. And my wife and I had been on a plan where we were, um, you know, working towards some goals to, to for, for retirement and things like that. And, you know, having a, a bad year like this with the, with the pandemic really throws a wrench into that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we're everybody's everybody's in the same boat. You know what I mean? I'm certainly not sitting here trying to mope and complain about, you know, being out of work with from the pandemic or anything like that because shit's hard all over, man. Like everybody's out of work. Like everybody's feeling the crunch on this thing. Everybody has had drastic changes in their lives. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not my place to complain or, or cry woe is me because the music industry shut down for a few years. So that's you know, big, tough, you know, big deal. You know what I mean? There's sure, worse. Yeah. There's worse problems to have. Right now, like my family has a roof over our head, and uh, you know we've got food in our kids' bellies, and that's a lot more than a lot of people have. So I'm certainly not here to complain about it. But but do I think that the industry is just going to like magically snap back to like what it was like, you know, a year ago? I, I I'm sorry, I don't. I I think that that even after this pandemic, you know, if we develop a vaccine and they get this thing under control, well, it's like. When, what about the next one or what about the you know what about the uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of like political unrest and civil unrest in our world these days and the you know the the i just think that that we need to be more cautious um i think that's it's made people see how vulnerable uh, the touring industry is it's not it's not one of the safest things to do for a, a living there's certainly things that are more dangerous mm-hmm. but you know i mean People, even prior to things like pandemics and like terrorist attacks at nightclubs and things like that, like people get injured and people get people die in bus crashes and people die on stages when they collapse and people die, you know, when shit falls out of rigging and it's it's a dangerous industry and uh, that needs to be thought about. But then you throw in like, okay, well, now there's a deadly pandemic and we do events where 20,000 people show up. I mean... Uh, that's that adds a whole new dimension to it. So I don't think we were going back to that anytime soon. I think I think when it comes back, it's just going to be a different model for how it happens. And I don't think anybody can. Means roadie, we're going to do a bevel burst, rapid fire questions. You ready? Go. What's your favorite band? Alice Donut, not Alice in Chains. Alice Donuts, a band from New York. Uh, favorite food? Sushi. Nice. nice. What's What's your your best best place to make make a tour tour stop? stop? Uh, Truck stop in the middle of the night. (laughs) All right. So this these are a couple questions that come from uh, Mr. Tom Brino out of Florida. Okay, I know Tom. Good dude. How how many pair of overalls do you own? Oh gosh, Uh, I'd have. uh, I lost count. Uh, That's all I wear though. I don't own pants. Overalls only. How many people total does it take to run a tour like an Alice in Chains tour or maybe a Bush tour? How many people are behind the scenes making that Always happen? completely depends on the band. Uh, like so the Helmet crew was as small as three people on crew. The Alice in Chains crew, I think, is uh, about 15. Uh, Bush ran with about 18 or 20. A uh, band like U2 or something like that, or like you, you might have 200 people on crew. So it, it always depends on uh, what the band can afford, what they want taken care of. What are they willing to pay someone to do, you know? Herb, this is a question I got from a Alice in Chains uh, 
Facebook fans, Facebook page, if you will. Um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with Larry. <laughs> oh, oh, Larry and I go way back. <laughs> Is Larry okay during this pandemic? We haven't seen Larry for too many weeks. Well, you know, Larry's a survivor. I'll tell you that. But, uh, you know, he's also, uh, you know, he's a lover, not a fighter. So uh, uh, Larry's business is Larry's private business. I don't really want to, you know, uh, you know, out him for any of his, his, his behaviors or his, his uh, predilections, as we, we will say. But uh, let's just say Larry's just fine. I appreciate, I appreciate you respecting his privacy. privacy. Yes. <laughs> so you're, you're currently... <laughs> and, you're... And, and, <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind. We, when he was in a... Don't call him a doll. <laughs> no, the mannequin. <laughs> that makes the last, the last AIC, AIC show I was at was the armor. As a matter of fact, it was the, the, herb, the hometown herb. He was actually up top, way up top in the, uh, I don't know. Larry, yeah, he was off stage, uh, he was off stage left in the, in the, uh, the VIP balcony. Exactly. I think your kids maybe went up there, Herb, or your family, yeah, or whatever. He was up there, with, was up there with, my, with my kids. Yeah, I seen him way before the show. I was in I was in line for that show probably about 10 a.m., and that was a long fucking day. I remember that. Holy shit. Um, right, Herb, next question. Herb, uh, this is not a rabble question. We're actually with, all of our, with our outlines all done. Herb, is there anything that Allison Chains, Jerry Cantrell... Brian Herb fans can look forward to in the next twelve in the next twelve months. Huh. Well, I have. Uh, I'm working on a record myself right now. I've got about seven songs recorded, and uh, I just finished mixing one about two weeks ago. But I was waiting to try to put together a music video on top of it to put it on YouTube before I released it. Um, obviously I'm going to guess that, I mean, I don't know, know Jerry's business, but I'm assuming he's going to put out a solo record probably sometime. Uh, you know, I think that's pretty public information, but that's, that's not my information to share beyond that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm also, uh, I got some new stuff going on with my business around here that, and probably the, uh, next year you're going to see a line of, uh, guitar effect pedals come out. I've got seven different designs that are almost uh, finished prototyping right now, and then uh, eventually they're um, we're we're working on a two year plan to start building guitars from scratch. And uh, one of the guys that works with me also wants to start making speaker cabinets and amps. So there's a lot going on in uh, Mother of All Music Land around here. Uh, some some Brian Herb music and uh, some new some new products from the uh, from the shop. So if there is other people, right, that want to get involved and help out with the good instruments for good people, yeah, uh, good people program, what what can they do? What's the best thing that they uh, the can do? The first thing you do is find me on Facebook. You can go to at M-O-A-M Guitar Shop. That's M-O-A-M as in Mother of All Music Guitar Shop. M-O-A-M Guitar Shop on Facebook or look up Brian Herb's uh, – or mother, of, look up Brian Herb, or look up Mother of All Music, or Mother of All Instrument Care and Repair. I'm real easy to find on Facebook. I'm real public, and I pretty much don't post about anything but guitars or music or cool stuff that I like to do. Uh, when I was on the road, I used to do what I called a view from the office every day, where I would take just like the random shot from like my world during a show every day, and uh, that kind of turned into a thing. So when the pandemic shut stuff down, I'd just been doing a view from the office, but now my views from the office are like guitars that I'm fixing on the bench every day. 
Uh, so yeah, I'm real easy to find. Hit me on that. Send me a direct message. You know, uh, uh, my friend list is getting close to the capacity, I think, but, um, you can always send me a message, uh, if you, uh, you want to donate an instrument or have work done or anything like that. If you know a kid that needs an instrument, just hit me up. So Herb, you actually will take people's guitars, whether it's a Cantrell, a GNL Rampage, like a blue dress replica like I had sent you, or if it's a uh, 1962 Les Paul, you will take guitars, you will take them no matter what condition they're in, and uh, make them to the spec that they ask for. How do they get those to you? What do they, what do they need to do to get a hold of you? Uh, well, again, just hit me up at, at MOAM Guitar Shop on Facebook. You can hit me up and just look up Brian Herb on Facebook. I'm easy to find. Um, I My service is a little bit different than like most guitar shops where you just kind of walk in and hand them your guitar and they put new strings on it and wave a wand over it. Where like I, um, my work is very precise and that kind of grows out of uh, what we do on the road. You have to have repeatability. So you learn to do a lot of like precision measurement on the instrument's in order to be able to repeat how they feel every day. And then by extension, that turns into with the clients that I have at home, I conduct a, a brief interview where we talk about their playing style and talk about their instruments and talk about the condition that they're in now. And then so when, when they bring me an instrument, I chart uh, you know with all these digital tools that measure to a thousandth of an inch, uh, the neck relief and the action and the clearance over the first fret for the nut slots and all these kind of things. And I chart this all very precisely with like uh, digital instruments. And then uh, I will set them up however, you know, I feel like would be appropriate for the conversations we've had about whether or not they're a strong grip or a light touch with their left hand or, you know, different kind of get a feel for the player. Or um, there are, you can look online and find uh, setup specifications for a lot of famous players. There's a couple books that have been published about that. I just happen to know Jerry's and Billy Duffy's and some of the people's that I've, that I've worked for. But, um, you know, you, you set guitars up. I, I'm into building relationships with my clients and their instruments. So, um, you kind of just, you know, it's all about precision setup, you know, like precision work. Uh, and that's kind of how that goes down. I just, I, I guess I kind of have two goals with my, with my setup work. Like I want any of the instruments that I give back to people, I want them to be in the type of condition that I would hand them to one of my rock star bosses in front of 20,000 people. Like that's a pretty good bar, you know, like if you bring me an instrument, that's the kind of condition I want it to be in when I give it back to you. So it's, it's a very holistic guitar repair. You know, it's, you know, like f fixing scratchy pots and like, you know, sticky tuning machines. And if there's anything wrong with the electronics, it always gets worked over. If I need to tear down bridges and do a complete rehab on them, I do all that. And, uh, and then the other thing is like, I always want my setups to inspire people to want to pick up their instruments and play. So part of that's just like little fancy tricks I do. Like I've got this, uh, you know, like I sneak knobs that go to 11 onto people's guitars a lot, or I uh, just, you know, it's like, it's really hard to take photos of a precision setup, but it's really easy to take photos of making things shiny. So, you know, I make a lot of things shiny too, you know, that's, that's part of it. Cause people open up their case and like they had some beat up instrument that was all dirty and crusty and I give it back to them and then it looks brand new and it's all like, you know, shiny, like it just came out of the box. Like, you know, people get excited about that too. I don't know. Try to make it exciting. Well, I can tell you, I've had uh, Brian Herb work on my own guitars, and everything was great. He sent me probably 
12 to 20 pictures during the process. Kept me informed for about three hours. I knew he was working hard on my guitar, uh, my Jerry Cantrell signature model replica, and I couldn't be more happy. So please, if you're looking for uh, anybody to either rehab or get your guitar or any instrument that you have working the way it should, hit up Brian Herb. Uh, we'll post uh, the the link to his Facebook down below, and uh, we'll he'll make it happen for you. Thanks for that, guys. I can always use the work. Hit me up. Please do. JR, are we, do we have anything else left or are we no, done? I think we are good, man. I can only say, uh, Mr. Brian Herb, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, it was a pleasure to uh, listen to the, the stories and what you're doing um, with instruments and for um, some underprivileged people and, and people who need them and, and stuff like that to continue the spread of, of music, um, even if you don't maybe have the, need, the, the means to get an instrument that you're interested in playing. I think that's awesome. You guys very much for having me it's an honor to uh i always i always feel humbled you know that that someone would would want to hear what i have to say so it's it's an honor to speak with you guys and uh thank you anyone out there listening thank you very much for listening we, we i appreciate it a lot well brian you're uh you've done so much over the years uh worked for my favorite band of all time i guess you're my friend you've helped me uh and in, in other situations and i think that uh, everything you do is great and let's hope that we can see you uh down the road sometime in the future if not if not we're still facebook friends forever <laughs> yeah, no see you down the road that's uh that's a that's a roadies that's a roadies goodbye see you down the road boys Star search nation, a million cries of me drown out the cruel frustration. I just want to give a, a special thanks to, to Dusty for being a guest host. Uh, my gut feeling is we'll see, we'll hear more from him. Uh, and then, of course, Brian Herb taking the time and uh, visiting with us for this podcast was uh, was awesome. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Uh, you know, to a call out to him, this is Alice Donuts in Tiny Ugly World once again. Herb, We're thank you so much for, the for joining us. These days. A job well done is not enough without a front page photograph. Death comes quickly to the horn of obscure. Movie prizes for the kind and unsure when they're standing in the light. channels of a daydream stimulation help me to forget myself and raise my expectations of a better life I'm ready to be special now get what I deserve and shine for an hour just wait for the light It would help if you could die It's a tiny little world Something fast and tragic At an early age Guilty soon as you try